Welcome, everyone, to the new episode of the Truth and Rally podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Roman, reporting middle of nowhere. So this past week, the second round of the playoffs has started. Heat versus New York, Boston versus Philly, Denver versus the Suns, and the Lakers versus Golden State. So, so far, injuries has influenced this playoffs. In the in, in the eight teams that are, are remaining, the only series that I think that's not being hampered by injuries is the Lakers versus Golden State. Now, the, the Nuggets are facing a team in the uh, Phoenix Suns that Chris Paul got hurt in the beginning of the series and could potentially miss the rest of the series, which may aid the Nuggets in the sense that now his experience and his presence on the floor is going to be missed by the Suns. By getting a guy like Kevin Durant, they can't really focus on the bench helping him in any kind of level. So this is going to be an interesting series because if Chris Paul is gone, who steps up? Cameron Payne doesn't look like the same guy that that the Phoenix Sun had a couple years ago. So who steps up? Do they have a bench that's strong enough to be that third scorer that, that brings attention away from a guy like Devin Booker or Kevin Durant? Or will Denver and the, the, the depth that they have overtake the Suns? What about the Philly series? In the first game, Joel Embiid did not play. He, and he obviously hasn't looked since he's the playoffs have started. Joel Embiid has not looked like an MVP candidate. He has had more games in where he shot under 50% versus over 50% that he has, that, that he has sh- uh, shot throughout the whole season. And Joel Embiid is not 100%. He's hampered, but he's trying to work through it. But the reality is he doesn't look great. And if he, this guy's supposed to be an MVP candidate, he's supposed to perform like it also in the playoffs. It doesn't just end what you do in the uh, regular season, but what you do in the playoffs also concludes why you should be it. Both Miami have and New York have won games uh, um, against each other, but we saw game one, Julius Randle didn't play. So then there's the what if factor if did the Heat beat the Knicks because no Julius Randle just like game two we question no Jimmy Butler did did the Heat did the Heat eventually lose that game because of not having a guy like Jimmy Butler let's talk about another player Anthony Davis Anthony Davis has been one of the most inconsistent players elite players in the playoffs he has one game where he's great and then immediately right after second game he manages not to score over 20 points and doesn't look like himself yet again. He may make the series against the Warriors go six or seven games because he can't have back-to-back games looking like an elite power forward slash center. So, so far, ladies and gentlemen, about, I'll say, 50 games or more have been played in the playoffs up to this point. Do you know that 27 games have been decided at the low... uh, at the minimum of ten game of ten points to to an e to a forty points in a game, I mean, how is this the playoffs? I don't like games in the playoffs where teams win by ten points or more. 
It doesn't make sense to me. I like to see a grudge match. I like to see a game where you could go anywhere, where the, the lead and the tie is going back and forth throughout the whole game. But the team that rises to the occasion in the fourth quarter always ends up being victorious. So 27 out of 50, after 50 games or more, that's roughly over 50% of the games that we've been watching have ended up being a 10-point uh, 10 win or higher, which in the end means that they are t t the games. I like to see the ratings in these games in the last five minutes. Where did it go from the beginning of the game into the last five minutes where teams are giving up, uh, losing by 10 points or more? How much did the viewership go down? How much did the viewership have faith that these teams had a chance and opportunity to come back in the fourth quarter and win the game versus tuning out and going somewhere else? It's just mind-boggling that we had a game where Memphis had to win versus the Lakers, and they lost by 40 points. A number two seed losing by 40 points in a game decision game. Again, uh, a, a decision maker in the series versus Memphis. I don't know if it's anybody else who who could be bothered by this, but I am. So, this past week, a former Coach of the Year candidate, a former coach who has won a championship, has been fired. So the Buck Milwaukee Bucks fired Mike Budenholzer. Holzer, hopefully, I said his name right. And I'm sorry, I, I look at this and I'm saying, how? How can you look at this guy and say it's his fault the way things turned out? In game one, the Greek freak got hurt. He played a minimum of 10 games. How is that the head coach's fault? You're saying with me, saying to me, that a 36 minutes or 40 minutes of having the Greek freak in game one wouldn't have changed the decision of the game or made it closer? Or in the end, help uh, Milwaukee eventually win? How was that the coach's fault? What about game three, where Bobby Portis couldn't stop following, f uh, following the Milwaukee Heat? Milwaukee Heat. Oh, my God. Miami Heat. Excuse me. He fouled them, and he ended up only playing 23 games. Now, if you know who Bobby Portis is, Bobby Portis is basically the sixth man of the year candidate MVP for the Milwaukee Bucks. When when guys like the Greek freak or someone's not doing their job or just having a bad game, he was always the guy who could come off the bench, start or come off the bench and just score a majority of the points. He was the most consistent guy that they had coming off the bench who could contribute. And he got fouled out? And you're saying that him playing 23 games versus 36 games couldn't change the result or made the game tighter, or at least put it to overtime. And that's the coach's fault that he couldn't calm him down. Bobby Portis is a grown man. He should know that his emotions, he should know that these referees, as much as you argue with them, a lot of them are not going to take a step back and say, maybe you're right. And I'll take that foul away from you. What about game four where Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday had horrible games? Who stepped up? Is that the coach's fault? Or does that ache Eric Spolstra in the heat? What about game five? Game five, which means the series was 3-1 heat. And the Mr. Greek Freak, one of the best power forwards in the game, 
ends up shooting 10 of 23 from the free throw line. That if he just hit 70% of his free throws, the Milwaukee Bucks makes this game go into a sixth game. But that's the coach's fault because he has control over the Greek freak hitting free throws or not. Just saying, when big players don't hit free throws, that's not on the coach. But let's look at another angle. Even though they were facing Miami Heat, and Miami Heat was the eighth team, let's put something into perspective. Last season, Miami Heat was the number one seed in the, in the Eastern Conference. Were they not? Yes, they were. If you look at Miami Heat, one of the most consistent things they've been saying in the playoffs attached to them is that in the season, they were the most injured team in the NBA. So you're saying if some of these guys played five or ten more games, maybe they wouldn't have just been a playing team. Maybe they, they would have uh, sat in the top five seed in the Eastern Conference if they all had played together and played at least 70 games or more together. You're saying that Eric Spolstra, with the experience he has and the NBA championships experience that he has and the leadership he has around him and the experience he has on the bench, that that's that still makes a a team like the Miami Heat, um, a, a a a team to feel ashamed of losing the series. I mean, look at, if you look at the first two games against the against the Knicks, the Heat looked like the same the same Heat that they looked like against the Milwaukee Bucks. So it kind of makes things crazy. I mean, one of the things you got to look at with the Heat, the Heat have gone from one of the worst scoring teams. In the regular season, to being one of the best scoring teams in the playoffs, and who is who could could have anybody have seen this? No, but does experience and winning usually help a team make that adjustment in the playoffs? Yeah, you know, as much as you want to say it's the coach's fault, a lot of it, a lot of it, you got to give props to Eric Spolstra. And being able to rally the troops and help this team win. I'm just saying, it's kind of crazy that Mike Boot, um, Budenhauser, Budenhauser, whatever his name is, is fired for that. Who is a worthy candidate to replace him? Where's the loyalty? Popovich in San Antonio, I know he's won championships, ladies and gentlemen. But ladies and gentlemen, he hasn't been in an NBA championship in more than a couple of years. He has one of the worst teams in the last couple of years. He had a young star in Murray who he could have spoke up and said, let's keep him and build around him. But instead, he was okay with trading him away and playing with the cards that he had. I'm just saying, where's the loyalty? 58 wins. He coached this team to 58 wins. And yet, they made it look so easy to let him go. Just saying. Joel Embiid won the MVP, and ladies and gentlemen, and you know while yes he was one of the, he was the scoring champion of the NBA, I still think Nikola Jovac was a better player. I mean, look of it statistically, Nikola Jovac statistically is a better rebounder, he's a better uh, uh, three point shooter, free throw. I mean, everything statistically is better. And looking at the playoffs. He has continued his success that he had in the regular season into the playoffs, while Joel Embiid has not looked the same in the playoffs, ladies and gentlemen. 
considering that the majority of the games that he's played, he's shooting under 50% after having a whole season where he shot over 50 cent. 50 cent. 50% is crazy. Statistically, his efficiency has gone down in the playoffs. That is not an MVP candidate, in my opinion. But we'll see what happens. We'll see if Joel Embiid can get healthy. We'll see what is going to happen next week if the whole uh, if the last eight teams are now down to four, or will there be a game six and seven to some of these games in the second round of the playoffs in the NBA? So last week was the uh, was the NFL draft. We saw teams trade up to try to grab a player. We saw teams being okay with trading down, which either helped them in this upcoming draft, in this past draft, or in the draft of the future. Some teams made questionable moves. Some have, have made some head scratches. Some teams focus on the players who they need to fill a need, meaning that because in, in the free agency, they did not get, they did not get uh, a player because they weren't available. They just didn't feel they fit the system. But in the draft, that was their focus. Get the guys who fit the system and get the guys who could potentially start right away. So let's look at the Broncos. So the Broncos lost their first round draft pick this this past season, this past draft, because of the trade with Seattle for Russell Wilson. So now when it came to them finally getting their first pick, you take a step back and you question, what do they need? What did they lose in free agency? They lost a guy like Draymond Jones, a defensive lineman who signed a big contract with Seattle. So you question, would they go after a D-line? Will they add O-line? Will they want get a tight end? What will they get in order to make this team better? And they went after a wide receiver, which wasn't necessary. So you're saying you already have three good wide receivers who you have relied on. And now you're saying you need a, a fourth one, a fifth one? I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me how they neglect the D-line how they neglect the O-line in trying to make it better, how they didn't get one of these tight ends to upgrade the tight end position or get a, a potential good backup in um, on the team at running back. But yet they went to right receiver. Wow, questionable move. We'll see what happens. We'll see if they trade one of the trade or release one of the wide receivers they have on their team currently right now. What about the Titans? The Titans made a question move, move themselves. They needed a wide receiver. They lost Robert Woods and others the past couple seasons. So in my opinion, they needed a wide receiver. They needed, a, uh, they needed to make an upgrade in that position. And for a second straight season, they drafted a quarterback. Why? Last season, you made it clear. Last season, the Tennessee Titans made it clear that Ryan Tannehill was not their future. And that he's expandable by drafting Malik Wallace. However, they went into this draft and they went into the second round and they thought getting the quarterback from Kentucky, Will Levi's, and drafting him. And if I was a Tennessee Titans fan, I was like, what are you doing? We need other positions that are available there that could potentially help us right away. Why are we getting Will Levi's, then have Ryan Tannehill, nobody wants Ryan Tannehill in his big contract. And you're f 
personally saying to Mike uh, Wallace, uh, we don't think you're the future. I mean, at 34 years old, Ryan Tannehill is not old in the NFL. Most players who are 34 have been able to contribute to teams that they started started for for another four to five uh, years. So the idea that they're willing to draft a quarterback two straight seasons, uh, two straight seasons is just it's mind-boggling. Because how is the wide receiving crew better? How is the tight end crew better? How is the O line better? These are different things. Who is going to be Henry's replacement? Remember. Running backs are good up to a certain point in the career, and then they hit a cliff and don't look so elite. Who will be Henry's replacement? That's another question or another position that they could have went into this draft and potentially draft, drafted in order to potentially replace Henry. What's another head-scratching team with other dra- draft picks? The Cincinnati Bengals. So they lost Jesse Bates. They don't have Eli Apple. And they lost their tight end this past uh, this past offseason so far. So you would think, okay, now it's their turn in the draft. Do we get a safety? Do we get a cornerback? What do we do to, to help this team get better? And instead of upgrade a need, they went for a D-line. They focused on the D-line yet again. Well, not yet again, but they... They they uh, drafted a D-lineman, and it didn't make sense because the majority of the players they have, they have tied up for the next two or three seasons. So why would you go back to a D-liner? Why wouldn't you upgrade your secondary? Why wouldn't you upgrade your tight end position? Maybe even draft a wide receiver. I don't know if they did draft a wide receiver in this past draft, but I know some guys are going to... T. Higgins is going to be a free agent next year, and it's going to be kind of hard the way this quarterback money status draft uh, thing has gone the past year that Joe Burrow is going to demand double, not double, but more than Jalen Hurts and Lamar Jackson since he's been better than both those guys his whole career. But it's a head scratcher. Did you need a D lineman? No. Did you need a cornerback or safety? Yes. So it's, it's, it's a questionable move. We'll see if it works out for them. We'll see if one of the D, uh, defensive ends potentially gets uh, released or traded, but we'll see what happens. So what team won? So you can go to many teams and say, well, they won because of this and they won because of that. But I felt that the Eagles won the draft overall because they upgraded positions and they made a trade late in the, in the, uh, in the draft for DeAndre Swift that ultimately upgrades their running back crew. They lost Miles Sanders and uh, Rashad Penny and DeAndre Swift are not Sanders, but the combination of them with a running game that's added with Jalen Hurts' legs can still make this rushing game for the Eagles still be top five in the league. But why did I like the draft? Well, they drafted a guy named uh, from Alabama named Tyler Steen who could potentially be the future right tackle or right guard. They got Jalen Carter from Georgia, who could potentially be Fletcher Cox's replacement after this season. What about a Nolan Smith, who could potentially be Brandon Graham's replacement? Sidney Brown comes in and he automatically becomes the starting, one of the starting safeties on your team. Again, things are working out to their favor. 
Another Georgia uh, college prospect, Kaylee Ringo, could potentially be James Bradbury or Darius Slade Jr.'s replacement. So everything kind of just worked out for them. They either got guys who are going to immediately uh, start or guys who could potentially be a starter next season. And that's why I say they won. They won because they got guys who are not these raw talents that may need a couple seasons to mature and get into place and to be in the starter they want. They got guys who could immediately be an impact on this team and who are great prospects. Other teams did good jobs. Listen, Seattle did a good job. They upgraded. the. Uh, you know, Seattle, in my opinion, ha- probably had one of the best off-seasons between the, what they've added in free agency and what they added in the draft. Getting Witherspoon to upgrade their, their, their secondary is great. Getting the wide receiver from, getting Jackson Smith from Ohio State and to potentially be Tyler Lockett's replacement is great because he comes in and he doesn't have to start right away. He can mature. He can develop. He can make mistakes. He doesn't have that pressure that now he's on this team. He automatically has to be the number one guy. And if he continues making drops and silly mistakes, it doesn't get into his head. They're allowing him to mature. They're allowing him to develop. And I like that move on their, their part. But I just feel that the Eagles have made a, made a bigger impact with what they did on draft weekend last week. Maybe it's just me, but that's what I think. So the American League East is probably one of the best divisions right now in Major League Baseball. Every team is over 500. So right now, that's one of the best teams. Bruce Bochy right now of the Texas Rangers kind of looks like Buck Showalter of last season where he's a manager who managed for a long time in Major League Baseball, left for a year or two or more, and now is back. And is leading his team to be a first place team in the division. Just like Buckshaw Walter did last year for the New York Mets. Bruce Brochy is doing the same for the Texas Rangers. In the National League Central, it looks like the uh, St. Louis Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Pirates kind of like switch spots. You know, within the last 20 years or more, the Cardinals have always been a consistent over 500 team. Versus how the Pirates have been consistently one of the worst teams in baseball in the last 25 years. But in this season so far, the Cardinals are one of the worst teams in baseball, which is a shocker. And just as the same as the Pittsburgh Pirates being one of the worst, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates being one of the best teams in the National League so far. So, so let's talk about a team that's kind of crazy right now. So the Tampa Bay Raves either are doing steroids or something else. Because how do they go from one of the worst home running teams last season to being the best this season? I mean, they have the same guys. They don't have a group of different guys, and that's why they're automatically one of the best teams. So how do they do that? How are they one of the worst to the best? Is the new rules helping them? It's the new rules helping the Rays and what kind of hitters they are. You know, new rules has put a time clock into hitting. Does that aid them versus hurt them? I don't know. But this, you know, let's continue with this whole rule changes. This is a kind of crazy thing to think about. 
before the season, you have players who have worked on things for multiple seasons on how to make themselves an all-star, how to make themselves a Cy Young, and how to make themselves not just an average player or above average player. And the old rules probably helped some of these guys. And now you're telling them to scrap what they perfected in practicing in terms of being one of the best hit- hitters in, in, uh, or pitchers. Now they have to scrap that and relearn how to be dominant in this league because these new rules seems to be affecting many teams. I think many teams are either going to make adjustments where maybe eventually they'll get better. Maybe they stay worse. We'll see if teams like the Pirates can sustain this uh, success, early on success they have. We'll see if the Rays look like one of the best home running teams in August or September. But it's just kind of crazy to think about you learn the game, you practice the game, and it may have taken you a couple seasons, but you learned how to be good in this game. And now they're telling you what you did can no longer happen. And what I mean by that is like, Hitters taking the time to get ready to hit. Did it make the pitcher impatient? Did it get in the head of the pitcher? Did a pitcher looking lost on the mound and taking a long decision in terms of what the next pitch aid the pitcher in having success over the hitter? Anyone? How, how did taking the time aid some of these teams versus hurt the teams? It's just, it's very much a, a, a different strategy, a different way to prepare for the season. And it's going to be interesting to see who makes adjustments. There's going to be a team sooner than later that just lifts off and looks completely different. And maybe it's generally because they had to make adjustments in making their game go with the way the new rules present itself. But it's crazy. Maybe it's just me, maybe it's someone else, but right now it's kind of crazy how this game is going. It's going to be crazy to see what happens in the future. So, WWE had its backlash in Puerto Rico, and I don't know about anybody else, but for me, I thought this is great for Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has been suffering since the two hurricanes that happened uh, several years ago. So having a tour attraction like WWE is great. And when you watch Backlash, ladies and gentlemen, the crowd was loud from beginning to the end. It was infectious. It made unwatchable matches that you normally don't want to see turn into matches you do want to see and you do want to experience because you wanted to see the excitement of the crowd. And it's crazy how the excitement of a crowd can change a match. But it does. They were loud the whole time. And it was amazing. Bad Bunny, just like Paul, practiced his butt off and had a great match. Seeing Sario Vega, who was this chubby wrestler, who was never one of the great wrestlers of the 90s, but he was Puerto Rican and he could wrestle and he got your attention. Come out was great. Carlito, who's a second generation wrestler, who used to spit apples that he chewed in his mouth on his opponent with his big afro, came out, and he still looked like he could wrestle at a, 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 a you know big time. And him being there, it was just a great experience overall to see what was happening. Um, no matter what, I like it. 
it's kind of like maybe like what, what kind of Brooklyn was several years ago where WWE never went to Brooklyn in the past because there was no arena in Brooklyn. Now, Barclays Center is around, and Brooklyn being the hipster town of New York became a tour attraction. And when you saw Brooklyn uh, host Raw or SmackDown or the SummerSlam like it did in the past, the crowd was loud. The, cl- the cl- uh, crowd, the fans were, the crowd was loud and infectious and it made you want to watch the match. And this was the same thing. So it's going to be curious to see what WWE does with Puerto Rico if they continue this. If they continue the, continue this whole uh, thing. Even, even... Uh, who? Every match was loud. It's infectious. I want to see more of it. I like seeing fans very involved versus being quiet. Even if they do the same boring chant that another city did, but it's even louder than the other city. I liked it. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, you can go on Apple. You can go on Spotify. You can go on any other podcast apps that you may like. Subscribe. Because if you subscribe to my podcast... You will always be made aware when a new episode, podcast episode, will be available for your listening ears. Remember, you can go and follow me on social media at the Truth and Reality Podcast. It's basically City Field with Macho Man in front. If you, if that helps out in terms of looking for me. And uh, other than that, ladies and gentlemen, have a good day and even better night. Bye bye.